1: Today on the Chef Daily Podcast, inflation is the highest it's been in over 40 years. What does the Bank of Canada's interest rate hike mean for you, and could inflation start to ease anytime soon? Economist Jack Mintz gives us some answers. Arnold Schwarzenegger is facing a very strange allegation from a fellow actor. Sir Christopher Gilbert gets into all of that and more with some interesting insights on life in Tokyo. Kind of takes us for a little bit of a walk. I didn't know that there's a bunch of cities in Tokyo. It's all on the International Dispatch coming up on the podcast. Plus, plastic is everywhere, our tech toys, and even in our blood. Greg Fish with the world of weird things takes us through the alternatives to plastic and what could be a lot safer and a lot more profitable too. We dig into all of that on the shift daily podcast.
0: This is the shift podcast. Ryan
1: O'Donnell is here. He's in Calgary too. He's downtown. Brennan Kelly, DJ BK is in downtown Vancouver and somewhere in Tokyo is Sir Christopher Gilbert. Let's get into the International Dispatch.
0: Welcome to the International Dispatch from our world citizen. Live from Japan, New Zealand's Chris Gilbert.
1: So if I search Tokyo on Google Maps, is there like a neighborhood you can point us to that I can type in in English?
2: Um, I mean, not on national radio in Canada. I can't point you to a neighborhood there, Shane. I can tell you... Are you afraid so that someone's
1: going to show up and knock on your door?
2: Well, I don't know. I just want to give out my personal information on the radio, but I can tell you for the that I live, I live in uh, Shibuya-ku. Uh, not Shibuya City. Like Shibuya City is like the middle of Shibuya-ku. Shibuya-ku is like the ward. So uh, the greater area of Shibuya is where I live.
1: Okay. Well, that's where I'm yeah, looking. I, so the Miji Jingu, you buy that?
2: Meiji Jingu. Uh, Meiji Jingu. I'm to the northwest of that. I um, I live near an area called uh, Sasazuka. It's a It's a Z U K A. my local See, that neighborhood. That
1: so hard. Was
3: it?
2: I know. Was Actually, so hard. It hard. no
3: one's hard coming knocking.
1: I mean, like I'm gonna feel terrible if someone shows up and like, you know, beats you up or something. But I mean, like it's all right. You're all right. There's a lot. I of live. Streets, um, eh?
2: I live one train stop actually from Shinjuku which is like the big famous neon area you know and it's quite a long train ride but it's you know like a good 10 minutes but like I live one train Shinjuku stop Central there. Park uh I don't know anything about Shinjuku Central Park but there's like Shinjuku the the city of Shinjuku because Tokyo is not a city Tokyo is 23 Sh- cities like Tokyo oh, is see, I didn't many,
3: know
2: that. Yeah many cities like crammed together and so oh, when, I, when I first um moved here I, I used to ask people so where's the cbd and people would just like laugh at me um because there's not there's not any cbd there's no cbd there's you know multiple um you know areas uh city areas that you can go to and uh, shinjuku is one of them and shibuya is one of them and i kind of live somewhere in between oh, there the you
1: know there you go shinjuku city and i'm going to try to pronounce there's shin okubu okubo uh
2: shin yeah.
1: And then west of that is Miyatshita. Oh, lost my zoom. Kosaten.
2: I mean, possibly. I don't know every part of oh, Tokyo. To be perfectly honest, there's a lot of it's a big. Thing. Hey, do you
1: do you know Steve from Tokyo? I know. you yeah. know Steve?
3: I know Steve. You know, the, He's from Tokyo. The
2: thing, the thing is that if you do that with New Zealand, it actually works. It's like, yeah, right. Oh, my friend, my friend Tom. I was like, oh yeah, I know Tom. <laughs>
1: Oh, I'm trying to find this is neat though. It's kind of cool. See, sorry, I didn't mean to put you on. So, the Sobo, the Chuo East line, is that the train that you take?
2: Um, No, no, I take the, I take, oh no, very close. I take the KO line. So, the KO line goes to Sasuzuka. And the Chuo goes from, the Chuo is actually the main artery that goes directly west from, from Tokyo. So like, you hmm. have the Chuo Expressway and the Chuo Main Line. And so that's, that's one of like the heart beats, not the heart. Well, I hit it before, artery. You know, It's one of the main arteries of, of, <laughs> of Japan, really.
1: Lost in translation yeah. from English to English. Mm-hmm. Um, but so that's really how we get this wrong in Canada, right? I mean, the access to this transit to go from city to city to city really is I mean, we don't, we don't do a very good job with any of this here compared to this. Like, look at all this stuff. Well,
2: I mean, I mean like, don't forget that, oh, okay, here we go down memory lane. But, like, uh, after World War II, Japan couldn't have an army. And so and it still, to the current day, isn't legally allowed to have an army. And so all of that money that, you know, other countries are putting into their defense forces in the Cold War, Japan was putting into infrastructure, uh, into the healthcare system and into the Shinkansen, the bullet train, the railways, and such. And so, you know, it, the, the public transport system here is actually pretty, pretty amazing. Like, it, like in my home country, New Zealand, it takes, you know, like New Zealand, Auckland and Wellington are about 600 Ks apart, right? So, you know, not that far. They're on the same island. If you want to take a train between Wellington and Auckland, it takes 12 hours, and it'll cost you, like, over $100. It's absolutely wow. redonkulous. So, yeah, like, uh, I think uh, the same problem back in my home country, like, the infrastructure there is not not so hot. It's pretty compared to Japan. It's best in the world.
1: All right. So Christopher Gilbert is from New Zealand. He was in Japan, then in Canada, back in Japan. Now, he takes us on a bit of a tour around the world with some stories. Where are we going, bud?
2: Um, well, I don't know where, where this one's actually based It's more just like a something that somebody said I guess England, um, maybe Hollywood um, But there's, a, there's an actress, a very famous actress called Miriam Margulies um, Who you might know as Professor Sprout from some of the Harry Potter films She was a, a, one of the dog's voices in Babe She's in a whole bunch of things She's very famous and, um, Oh, she got the big she, hair Yeah, she's the big hair lady um you know there's there's three of them there's uh her there's judy dench and there's um oh my goodness i've forgotten the other british actress who's really famous who's also in harry potter um i guarantee you ryan knows um she's a dame oh it's gonna eat at me it doesn't matter though anyway back to the...
0: maggie yes maggie. maggie dame maggie smith yes maggie smith. there you go yeah there you
2: go. thank you thank you um Anyway, one of the triumvirate is Dame, uh, not she's not Dame, but she's Miriam Margulies. She said that okay, this is news because she said it that she was asked recently on Australian radio, "Who's your favourite? Who's your favourite person to work with?" And she said somebody's name and go, "Oh, who's your least favourite per- favourite person to work with?" And she said everyone's favourite um, Austrian muscle man, Arnie. She didn't like working with Arnie. Arnie and Miriam worked together. Least favorite. Least favorite. Arnie, the man. End of Days, the 1999 horror supernatural film where, like, Arnie beats Satan. Um, They were filming, and she was playing Satan's sister or someone, or henchman or something. And Arnie did a very unpleasant thing. To her, which I will not tell you, but I'll get the audio of her saying it to tell you. So, uh, Brendan, can you play that clip?
4: He's a a bit too full of himself. I, I don't care for him at all. He's a Republican, and he was actually quite rude. He farted in my face. Now,
3: I fart. Of course I do. But I don't fart in people's faces. He did it deliberately right in my face.
2: Awesome. Hero. Hero, I'm sorry, you can't argue with that. You can if you are Arnie, you and can. like you can't. He's he's done everything, you know. Like he's just a bodybuilder. I don't know if you've gone on YouTube and seen like the the inspirational Arnie speech where he talks about meeting your goals and working your butt off, but it's very good actually, to be honest. He's done everything. He's a bodybuilder. He's like, you know, governor of California at some stage. And, you know, he's an international, like, famous movie actor, you know, who can barely speak English. And he just goes around farting in people's faces. And I think that this right. And I stopped myself from saying several expletives before I said the word right, because Ryan warned me before I came on the air. Um, mm. But mm-hmm. I think good on I. That's 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 my reaction. I mean, I, I not to the victim of the the fighting offense. My empathy goes to her as well, but I do think it's kind of cool.
1: Uh that's wild, actually. What an incredible story! Uh, probably didn't expect that one. Uh, is there another little bit here to this one? Is there yeah, more? To this yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: She explains more of the context. Let's let's listen to that.
3: I can't remember the date, but it was during the filming of End of Days in Los Angeles. And I was playing Satan's sister and he was killing me. So he had me in a, in a position where I couldn't escape and uh, lying on the floor. And he just farted. <laughs> it, wasn't, it wasn't on film. It was in a, one of the pauses, but I haven't forgiven him for it. <laughs> well.
1: Maybe one day she'll find clarity in her heart and be able to forgive him for the
2: fight. I mean, do, what do we I mean, how do we feel about this? Because like obviously fighting in public is not great. Fighting at the workplace is even worse. And then intentionally doing it is even worse, and intentionally aiming it towards someone's face is probably the most heinous crime imaginable. But mm. he is also he's Arnie, you know. So Sometimes like, how do we feel about they
1: slip though like if it's if it slipped then it's just a human thing that would happen sometimes sometimes people they laugh Uh, hard they sneeze whatever uh, you know sometimes uh, they just kind of sneak out
2: he doesn't slip i don't know Uh, maybe he does no he doesn't there's
1: a lot of protein shakes man there could be a there's been a lot you know his his
2: muscles are toned to the point where he can control everything that is going on in his body I think to a T, he can lock down and he can open up. And Have you ever seen I-
1: those bodybuilders when they're lifting like deadlifts on like heavy weights and they just basically lift and they start to vomit because they're squeezing so hard and they lift stuff up and they just start to get sick. And so I like, I mean, I don't think you're, I think you're overestimating. I think maybe, you know, he, he just he, one slipped out. If we can't support each other in the worst of the human, skin bag things that happen that we can't control. I mean, that's the times we got to support each other the most, right? Like you, if you go pee your pants, well, so what, buddy? Here, here's some clean pants. No big deal. It's just life stuff. Let the poor guy, just let him Trump.
2: <laughs> um,
1: Quick roundtable:
2: Ryan, Brendan, uh, intentional or accidental? And do we like him more for this or like him less for
0: this? Okay, well, if it was intentional, no, mostly because like... Look, like I get it. It's it's Arnold Schwarzenegger. It's like he was at one point the highest paid actor in the world, even though people told him you will never be a starring lead because you can't, you know, you can barely speak English. Proved him wrong. I mean, this he is an absolute legend. He's one of the most successful people to ever walk the face of the earth. However, Miriam is a national treasure. She is one of the funniest people to walk the face of the earth. So really I funny. almost feel bad for her. I feel bad for her. I don't want to get that to happen to me in any circumstance. See, if Arnold, if that was an accident, I feel like Arnold would have said, I'm sorry, that's bad of me. I should have not done that. Now. I'm so
2: sorry. I'm so sorry.
0: <laughs> everybody but, dumb. <laughs> everybody does it. <laughs> sorry, the accent changed. This there. is the best part of this whole conversation. <laughs> so you guys just keep talking like this. I'm good okay. with it. That's a bomb. <laughs> get through the job. Bro. That's how I recenter it. That's why I go back to Arnold. Um, he oh, would have said boy. sorry. And he did not. Mir- at least according to Miriam, he did not. So it seems like it was intentional. And in that regard, Arnie, that's a little weird. <laughs> that's like a bully energy. You know, that's the kind of thing that kids would do to each other. You know, when I was growing up in, you know, in Ontario, like stupid like that. It's just, it's very bizarre. Um, but I'm glad she talked about it. And I'm really curious to see if Arnold will ever respond to it. Gonna, we don't I'm need to know everything that? goes on
2: in on it, in Ontario. Uh Brendan, what what do you think,
0: Yeah, no, I gotta say I'm hundred percent opposed to weaponized farts like that.
1: Um <laughs> weaponized.
0: And I do believe I from from where it sounds like it sounds like that was a weaponized fart. I mean and <laughs> yeah. to your point earlier, he was a bodybuilder. He should have the control with his midsection and his core strength not to let one slip out. Like he wasn't deadlifting in her face. Like, come on, he was <laughs> <laughs>
1: It's a lot of protein, man. Have you ever taken You're creatine? Right. Boy, things get a little yeah, wild down there.
2: But he's not bodybuilding on a movie set, you know. You he's not doing creatine he, and protein shakes. On he was and killing also, Satan's sister. I, you know, what? I, I'm gonna, I'm to make a judgment here, having heard um, all the opinions. That it was intentional, and that it's not okay. Um, let's move on. Um, yeah, fair U.S. Enough. tourist, U.S. tourist. Um, okay. Uh, also, question uh, for anybody. Have you ever, especially now that travel is resumed a little bit, um, and you know Europe is having its summer of revenge, otherwise known as the summer of hell, where like all of North America decided to go to Greece at the same time and lose their baggage? Um, ever walk through a transfer airport, a transfer lounge or gate at an international hub and think? You know, usually you think, you know, maybe we, we can solve global warming. Maybe we can, you know, like bet we can ban guns. Maybe we can make the world a better place. Then you go through Hong Kong airport at three in the morning and you see the rest of humanity and you think, oh, God, no, we can't.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, you know, you just at the airport, you just see like the worst specimens of, of, of humankind imaginable and even unimaginable. Um, and I feel um, this story is about someone like that. You as tourists falls into Mount Vesuvius after taking a selfie. Um, An American tourist uh, fell into the Italian um, active volcano after trespassing to take a selfie, officials said. My problem with this, by the way, is not the selfie. The 23-year-old man who dropped his phone and tried to retrieve it after the selfie fell 15 meters into the ash of the crater before being saved by nearby park officials. He sustained only minor injuries and he lived. He's not been named. He allegedly, and this is my problem with this story, allegedly walked on an unauthorized path to reach the summit of Mount Vesuvius at 1,281 meters, according to a spokesperson. So the tickets to go to the crater were all booked, so he couldn't visit the crater. And so he just took a little shortcut, walked off the path, um, and apparently. The guy was with two other Americans, two other Brits, and an Austrian. They were all with him when he dropped his phone. He was like, oh, it's not my phone. And he wanted to reach into the volcano to get his precious iPhone out. And he slipped and fell. Meanwhile, on the news in Italy, like news alert, um, people are like, oh, look, there's people walking around the crater of Mount Vesuvius. That's not meant to be happening. And so while they were doing it, the park officials were like, oh, we better go save them before you know someone falls in the volcano or something. And so luckily mm-hmm. for this guy, um, at, at the moment that he fell, park officials were already on their way to help him out. Otherwise, he could have fallen 300 meters. And anyway, I I am appalled by this much more than the farting story.
1: Well, I, I think that the fact that he is willing to take any sort of unauthorized pathways on a volcano. There um, are a couple of different belief systems that of what should happen to him. But I think that my real takeaway is that hearing that an influencer or somebody fell from a cliff, taking a selfie it's not surprising to me. And that's what bothers me the most. The fact that somebody tried to take a picture of themselves on the edge of something to post it on social media. The fact that that doesn't even faze me anymore is even more concerning. No,
2: and this, as I said, like that's not the part of the story that offends me because I'm like, oh, this guy, I don't even know if he's an influencer. I think he's just a 23-year-old something or rather a word that I wanted to say on the show, but Ryan warned me not to say. Um, I think he's, <laughs> he's one of those. And I don't think he's an influencer or anything. I think he's just one of those good old guys. And I think, like, what offends me is that I personally last weekend, everybody, I was actually on a volcano, uh, hmm. you know, very a very domey one, very similar to Vesuvius. And you and uh, you can't hike up to the crater because it's an active. It's called Asamayama, by the way, which I like because it's called Asama It's kind of like, like Bananarama.
1: Like a, it's kind of like a sandwich.
2: Yeah, or like a bowling alley. But like, mm. yeah, it's called a Samayama. And like, you can go up to the top, but you can't go deep enough in to, of the top to reach the crater because it's active. And I could have been one of these good old guys and be like, brruh, 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 brruh. I'm going to go and take my photo of, at the smoky place and put it on sm- Smixmock or whatever, the, <laughs> you know. and, and but I, But I didn't because you know why? Because anybody who's hiked or snowboard, snowboarded in their life knows respect the mountain. you got to respect the mountain. And as you're walking up the crater, as you're walking up to the ridge and you look you're like, it's freaky, man, because you're up there and you're all alone and it's a hostile environment and it's volcanic rock and there's smoke and there's all kinds of things happening. And you're like, you know what? I don't want to get close to that crater. What kind of idiot does it take? To be like, boop, boop, boop. I'm going to take my photo. I'm going to take it over there. Boop, boop, boop. And I'm going to drop my phone. Oh, I'm going to reach into the active. Oh, I God, think your that, answer that is. Been a da- that should have been a Darwin Award. right?
1: That's the guy right there. I think that's the answer to that. And, and more so than respect the mountain, I would offer respect gravity.
2: Yep. And and, and just, you know what? Respect yourself a little bit more. do do not Don't do, don't <laughs> do selfies yourself. in 2022. No one does <laughs> selfies anymore. For goodness well, it's, sake.
1: It's not even the selfie. It's the fact that you took the picture and then they go... You know what? Everybody else probably wants to see my face right now. Like, that's the worst part of the selfie. Oh, God. <laughs> and he did it
2: in front of his friends, too. He had yeah. five friends there. And the thing is that this guy must have been such an absolute jerk that when he fell 15 meters into a volcano, his friends didn't help him. They had to take the park officials to come along and pull him out because he had five guys there watching and be like, oh, they were you know what? I
0: didn't
1: Probably like taking that much pictures anyway. of him.
0: Yeah,
3: so, <laughs> I love
1: selfies.
0: it. Sir yeah, Christopher you know Gilbert
1: what? is in Tokyo. We have time for one more quick one. I kind of like the uh, the the crime guy one. It's up to you though.
2: The crime is it the, the one in Japan?
1: Uh, the UK oh, Tory guy.
2: The UK Tory guy. Um, let me just check my notes to see. Oh right, yeah, because it's a lady. That's why I was confused. Oh, um, well, Tory crime guy. Revisorer.
1: I meant lady. Well, mm.
2: oh, you know, guy, lady, it's all colloquial. Um, Caroline, 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 Caroline Henry um, is the Tory Crime Commissioner in the UK. She's been banned from driving after being caught speeding five times in twelve weeks. Um, she was reportedly tearing up, um, not the travel, not the not the, the speeding fines, but like crying at the time that she gave evidence on Monday, telling the court that relying on public transport would make it awfully difficult to transport her children around. Um, She, blah, 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 there's context, context. She was fined 2,450 pounds. She was banned for six months for exceeding the 30 miles per hour, what's that, 50 Ks limit, and Mm -hmm. a blue Mercedes and a Lexus with a private number plate. Um, There have been calls for her to step down, but she previously said she wanted to stay in her job, which pays her £76,000 a year, which is, I don't know how much it is in Canadian dollars, but you know what, it's a lot of money. Um, uh, after you know, she declined to answer questions about whether she would resign, she said, Quite properly, I've been fined and banned from driving for six months. I remain committed to serving the people of Nottingham sure as police and crime commissioner. Um, she was captured speeding twice twice near a primary school. That's elementary oh, school in Canadian. That's the worst was, part, man. That is the word. You don't speed near a school, ladies and gentlemen. Um, uh, near primary schools in Daybrook, Nottingham, and in Chilwell and Beeston. Um, she was <laughs> going uh, <laughs> um, up to <laughs> ten, uh, 5, 8, and 10 uh, miles per hour over the limit. Uh, The judge said she was driving at consistent speeds above the limit, and she was crying at the time. She said she doesn't know how to drive her children around anymore without her blue Mercedes and her Lexus. Um, You know what? Don't care. Sorry, like don't don't speed near schools.
1: Yeah, that's you know what. There's there's two places. I there's a lot of times I disagree with speed limits. There are two places when we absolutely have to do it. Number one, the schools protect the babies. Number two the construction zones when there's people standing there just slow down because yeah. you go stand. I always say if you get caught speeding in a construction zone you should have to sit on the side of the road and hold the stop sign for a, for a couple of days and then you can get a good feel about how terrible that is I mean they're trying yeah. to make the road better for you I know hey, it's they're funny just that she's trying crime to do their
2: job you know and also playgrounds as well because you know the little blue bouncy ball goes across the road and and so does little Timmy, and then you know, like Carolyn comes around and around in her blue Lexus, and you know, goodbye Timmy. So, like, I am not, I am not a fan of this lady. There's three people I'm not fans of today: the Tory UK <laughs> Police Crime Commissioner, um, mm-hmm. the 23-year-old American who fell into Mount Vesuvius, and mm-hmm. uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Those there you are go. The three new people on my um, on my uh, do not like list.
1: There you go. That's the uh, that's the takeaway. It's the international dispatch. Sir Christopher Gilbert joins us live from Tokyo, one of many cities in the greater Tokyo area. There, how's that? Yeah,
2: yeah. Well, that's Tokyo was not a city in Tokyo. There's no city in Tokyo called Tokyo. There's no city. I'm with... in Shibuya in Tokyo, but yes, nice Shibuya. <laughs>
1: we might have to work with that. That's pretty good. Yeah. Thanks, Chris. Shibuya. Great to see you, bud.
0: See you next week. This is The Shift Podcast.
1: The words we hear today are very, very scary. We hear words like inflation, debt, interest rates, rising costs, expensive, right? We hear all those words all the time. And and how is it that they land with you? I know with me, I'd like to think that I can tell myself, no, this part is good, and that part, you know, this is just a correction and whatever, whatever, but it does create anxiety. There's no denying when I go to the gas pump There is now a calculation to fill up my SUV that I didn't have to do a few months ago. There's no denying that when I would go to run to the store, I'm now going to the grocery store to buy a couple of things, not necessarily going to Costco to get the big grocery haul. And so I wanted to subscribe to a little bit of assistance with this conversation so we can get some insight on what this truly looks like. Uh, Jack Mintz is an economist, President's Fellow of the School of Public Policy, University of Calgary, and many other credentials as well. Hi, Jack. Hi. Well, thanks for being here. Um, you're an economist, so you've spent your career studying all of these things. Does it still hit you like it hits me when you sometimes go to the gas pump or go to the grocery store and you're like, oh, wow.
3: <laughs> no, it's actually, uh, well, luckily, be living at home so much and working at home, one doesn't have to go in the car as much as you used. Yeah, that to, is a good but, point. Uh, uh, but certainly, uh, it is quite a shock to, to see what the, you know, the price of gasoline is now. Uh, you know, where it's almost $2 a, a liter. And uh, and I do find food prices are, are, you know, when we go, my wife and I would go shopping. Um, it's really quite amazing, actually, now looking at, you know, how much strawberries might cost or celery yeah. you know, or, or uh, and just basic items, right? And I think, you know, uh, well, we have, uh, you know, an easy time or let's say we, we can deal with the, the extra expenditures that we have to make on, on all the basic necessities. Uh, I do think a lot about people who are on fixed incomes, and, you know, such as elderly people or uh, uh, or people who, you know, don't have a lot of income the and they start seeing these, you know, much higher prices and they have to deal with that. And I think that is quite a challenge for them.
1: Yeah, you know what really hits me is when I invite you know Jack and your wife will come over and let's just have some burgers or some steaks or just like a social call. And so what do you do? You run to the store. You maybe get a bottle of wine. You get yourself uh, you know those couple of burgers, the little extra things, maybe a little extra lettuce and celery for the salad. And now having a friend over is is starting to look more like going to a restaurant. Um and uh, and it gets expensive. And I think you're right. It hits all of us a little bit differently. Um I. I'm out of my lane here, Jack, when it comes to what it is that the government can or can't do. Uh, we've had some young people that have messaged the shift saying, well, what is the point of raising interest rates? How does that protect us? Um, you know, what are you looking at here from the economist's perspective that helps us understand what's going on?
3: Well, I think, you know, there's been a number of factors that, have, you know, led to this inflation. And I think the problem is, is that there's that, that's in the past. And I think the question is, what can we do in the future? Which is, those are two very different uh, things. I mean, we should learn from the past. And I think 2020 was a really perfect example where it was one thing in trying to you know, prevent people from going into major financial collapse you know, by the government spending money uh, on Serbs and you wage know, subsidies and everything else to try to buoy up the economy. But it's another thing when you spend so much money uh, whether it's we charities and extra payments for the elderly or or, or whatever uh, but you spend so much money that actually households had more income during the pandemic uh, even though employment income had dropped and so it you know that's that that's a result you normally would never expect during you know a recession that people would actually have more money to spend rather than less money and and that set up uh, uh, a monetary uh, expansion uh, that uh, we're now paying the price. Uh, you know, with inflation today, it usually takes 18 months to two years to, to go through the economy. And, and we're facing that right now. And, and it's as a result of very loose monetary policy uh, overspending by governments in 2020 and 2021. Uh, and, and now we're, 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 we're facing that inflation, but that's the past. And so the question is, how do you deal with it in the future? And the only way that you can bring inflation down uh, is to raise interest rates and to try to reduce demand. Um, and of course, one of the things that have made this inflation very difficult has been what you know economists have called or what I call it supply induced inflation or cost push inflation, where uh, you know uh, demand ran ahead of supply. and and now we're facing the consequences of not having enough people to work. Million job vacancies, which is, you know, out of uh, out of uh, 20 million people that are employed. I mean, that's a huge number of mm-hmm. uh, of people that are, you know, jobs that are available. And yet we have an unemployment uh, uh, unemployment that is still over a million people. In fact, I looked at the numbers last week in, a, in an article, Financial Post, people can read. And when you look at the growth in uh, or the change in unemployment, people who you know, we're looking for a job, but uh, uh, we're still not working. Uh, from February 2020 to today, it's only gone down by 100,000, from 1.16 million to 1.06 wow. million. And so you have to ask the question, like, you know, with all these jobs, available, why isn't our, the people who are unemployed, why isn't it down to 500,000 people? Uh, you know, we should be having a lot more people, on, you know, in the job market right now. So, so, there's a lot of things that are really uh, strange that are happening right now, but a big part of it is this uh, inadequate supply, and then all the disruptions that happened with the pandemic, uh, more follow-ups with pandemic, like in China uh, this recently, uh, which shut down their economy for a bit, um, and now the Ukrainian-Russian war that's causing another type of supply shock to the economy. So. So we do have all these supply shocks, but uh, what hasn't been helped, I think, was uh, over-exuberant uh, government spending in 2021 that really fanned inflation. And now it's, uh, now we're stuck with it, and, and we're going to have to deal with
1: it. I, there's so much there. Thank you. Um, so I look at it this way, and please correct me. Now, I'm not educated uh, anywhere near the industry. Uh, in your experience. So I'm hoping that I can translate this and and let me know if I'm on the right path. When debt is cheap and you can have low interest rates, people who have secured, able to get secured money, you know, they have an asset in exchange for some some money. They have access to do anything they want to do, right? They've asset build, asset build, leverage, leverage, so on. People who don't have assets, they typically don't get the cheap money because they have no security against the bank or the credit bureau. And so they typically don't have easy access to money, like someone who has a bunch of money. Does that exaggerate the, the, the storyline that we hear about, you know, then you raise the interest rate and it squeezes out people, it's the margins change. So people put their money elsewhere. So that helps. Then of course you add in those strains, those supply strains of everybody now has more money. So they're buying more things. Plus the supply systems are broken and translate that to like you said about groceries. You know, the cost of groceries going up for someone who has a job and employed, it sucks, but they can probably absorb the difference. But to somebody who's on a fixed income, they can't absorb the difference. And that's what I feel like you just described to me when you talked about the money and the interest rate, that when the interest rate goes up, it squeezes by choice the people who have assets into making different decisions with their money and stopping spending in certain areas. They'll go into different markets. But the people who don't have assets who are on the fixed incomes, they get squeezed to the point of exposure, fragile, um, insolvent. Is that a fair look at what the the broad scope of what interest rates and what these things do? Either way, it's stopping spending. Some people are dangerously in trouble, though.
3: Well, I I think where I would differ from you a little bit is the following, and that is when interest rates were low, uh, I think a lot of people ended up buying an asset It was called a house, uh, and they were able to get a house with a mortgage. And they may have overextended themselves in getting a big mortgage, uh, but actually when you look at the data, it's not as bad as it sounds. Uh, but there, certainly that was one way in which uh, people did buy a, uh, buy a house. But when mortgage rates go up, uh, like they're currently doing, and people, let's say – uh, are turning over their mortgages, they don't want to leave their house. So their house may have gone up in value, but they're not selling their house. They don't have any cash on their hands. And they, yeah. they may have a, a salary that was enough to cover the mortgage payments every month. Uh, but actually, uh, with the rise in interest rates that we're seeing now, mortgage payments, when you start, let's say, going from a mortgage that was 2 or 3% um, per year and now you're looking at four to five percent, or even six uh, percent for a mortgage. Uh, then all of a sudden your principal and uh, and interest payments are are, are going a lot, going up quite a bit. In fact, they I forget the numbers now, but last time I looked at it, you know, you could end up paying, you know, um, you know, fifty percent more, in, uh, mm-hmm. you know, in 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 payments. And so uh, all of a sudden, you know, if you're, you know, if that's gone up from let's say uh, two thousand to three thousand dollars or or let's say uh, per month uh actually that would be probably too high let's say from five hundred to seven hundred and fifty dollars uh you know as a as a payment then you know and you're only earning let's say two thousand dollars a month let's say three thousand dollars a month uh you're going to get squeezed and of course you could always sell your house but then that's not a very satisfactory solution uh because usually, when interest rates start going up, housing prices start plateauing, maybe even falling, and you're not going to do as well in selling your asset as you were hoping to do. And there are there going to be a number of people that get into that situation uh, if interest rates really, really rise, which I suspect may happen because I think inflation, because of all these supply constraints, are going to be it's going to be much more difficult to deal with, and as a result, the bank. Bank of Canada and Federal Reserve in the United States uh, will probably be raising interest rates more than they thought they would have to, uh, and it's going to mean that there's going to be a bigger squeeze on many middle-class families that had bought a home. Uh, now, in the case of people with fixed income and are renting a place, uh, and they don't have no assets, and your point is absolutely right. There's a lot of people like that, and. Uh, and this is where seniors come in, particularly if you're working and you're getting um, because of inflation and getting higher uh, uh, salary. Uh, you know your employer starts paying more because they're trying to keep you and, and everything else. Uh, then you have an offset to the higher food prices that you're facing and, and gasoline prices, etc. But if you're on fixed income or you're on working for an employer who doesn't raise your your wages very much. Uh, then that inflation is going to really hurt because you don't have the you don't have your you don't have the other side of the ledger uh, you know when it comes to looking at you know receipts and expenses uh, you don't have your receipts rising uh, in order to cover those additional expenses due to inflation and, mm-hmm. and those people get hurt quite a bit and, and that's especially true for seniors because they tend to be on a fixed pension for example it's not an index for inflation. Uh, except for the cpp and and in that case they you know when there's inflation like ten percent uh, we'll see what this week's uh, announcement is going to be on wednesday but i suspect we will see a number that's going to get close to nine percent and and that's going to mean that people are really going to hurt this year who have a pension that's not going to go up by nine percent it's a fixed number it's a fixed number and then you have to make decisions do i Do I keep buying food, or do I have to give up maybe that trip uh, to go see the kids, or or whatever? Those those things are going to end up uh, being um, important questions that people are going to have to deal with, and it's going to be throughout Canada.
1: Well, and isn't it uh, very scary when we get into the psychology of all of it and everyone's been desperate for that trip for two years and now they're probably spending when they shouldn't anyway. Um, that that becomes very scary. And I'd like to throw just a couple of scenarios out. For example, people's tax bill is going to be way higher if they collected CERB because some of that money wasn't taken off. You're going to have to pay a bunch of that back. So now you're dealing with a CRA tax bill, plus you're dealing with more expensive peanut butter, plus the, the, uh, the so on and more and more and so on. So, I mean, there really is no break. And there was this speculation before when COVID was happening, sort of of the the, the Spanish flu with the Roaring Twenties into the Depression into the thirties. And it seems like we took that whole mentality and we put it on speed dial, right? Like it was like everyone come out of the pandemic with a bunch of money in their pocket. And one of the numbers I heard out of the States, and this is American number by memory, so it might not be right, was that 88 cents of every dollar that an American had in their pocket was printed in the last couple of years. And that's how much money some of governments around the world have pumped in to the economies. And it was inevitable that this was going to happen. So there seems to be this reckless storm of so many contributing factors and so it boils down to this for me jack is that the government at least as i see it has been so reckless that they haven't um mitigated any of it and then now they've said that that's the bank of canada's problem they've got to deal with that is there anything the government can do other than stopping spending or at least stopping printing money for spending uh, that they could actually do, or is this one of those things that has to be written out? The government—I feel like the government has thrown a grenade in Canadians' laps here, if you will, metaphorically—and gone, oh, you deal with it."
3: Well, I think I think there are some things that the government can do, um, and uh, you know, this. Uh, although the one of the things to be careful of is the government should just be handing out more money to offset the flight, cost of inflation, because all that will do is. Create a bigger deficit and then require even more money to be printed and then even more inflation down the road. So, I think that that's a solution that we, we, sh- we should avoid is anything that's going to fan uh, further inflation. Uh, but we have to remember, we're, we're getting, uh, first of all, we're getting tax increases coming in that are actually raising prices. Uh, you know, For example, uh, the carbon tax has been scheduled to in- increase again you know, the price of oil has already gone up a lot. I mean, far more than what the carbon tax has done.
1: Yeah. They're making you it have more.
3: To keep aggravating it a bit more. We could have, we could have waited to put the carbon tax on higher. Uh, I mean, it, it's not needed to go up every year by, you know, by, uh, you know, by $10 uh, or, or whatever the number is going to be in the future. So, you know, that could have been that, you know, we could hold off on things that increase prices, consumer prices, uh, the governments are doing. Um, I think the other thing is that the governments are going to have to cut back their 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 fiscal spending and, and to bring down deficits because that actually aggravates uh, the situation for the Bank of Canada because what happens is the government keeps spending money, whether it's on new social services or whatever, whether it's dental care plans or, or other things, that's just going to push up more of the deficits and then it's going to have to be financed by more printing money uh, or the government's going to end up Issuing more bonds, it will also cause interest rates to go up even more. So either of those things are are, are, are not very satisfactory. Um, now, is there, and is there a possibility of actually carrying out some changes that actually do both, lower prices and at the same time reduce fiscal deficits? And I would argue, yes, there are. For example, suppose the government had a cut to the GST rate by one point. Everybody benefits, whether you're old, you're young, you're working, you're not working. Uh, Everyone will get a benefit of having lower prices. Now you say, well, that will increase the deficit. Well, that's bad. But what happens if the government also carries out, uh, uh, at the same time, a reduction in spending that's equal to that reduction in in the GST rate? Then you end up getting not only lower prices, uh, but you also end up not putting pressure on inflation in the future by growing the deficit. And Can I ask a
1: question about that without interrupting too bluntly? Okay, so let's use hundred dollars as an example. So a hundred dollar item, inflation is at nine percent. So a hundred dollar item is a hundred and well, let's use ten percent; it's easier. Uh, yeah. Is now a dollar ten? Okay. Um, so GST has gone from five cents to five and a half cents. It's going to get rounded up to six cents. So the government was making six cents now. So the government's actually making more money because the prices have gone up. So not only if you take the GST and you knock it down to 4%, now it goes back. They're still making 5 cents. They're still making the same amount of money. And then they also cut spending. So it saves us three times. Technically, they're making more money. It's like you said about the oil. Is like the government is making more money on oil now than they have in the last decade. And yet they're still taxing everybody more on top of that too. So there is no reason, in uh, speculatively, there's no reason why they can't start to reduce deficits because you know, I mean they're they're basically becoming flush with cash with all these things
3: oh no that's correct uh, because of inflation they're actually getting more revenues coming in uh, yeah. and and that's true uh, in fact just to add a little salt on, onto your wound oh when you go to the gas pump and the federal government and the provinces have fuel excise taxes on that the federal government is ten cents a liter and depending on the province it could be fourteen cents a liter or you know, twenty cents a liter. In fact, in BC it's even higher. Uh, then the then the G, GST, or in the case of Ontario and, and Quebec, and the Atlantic provinces, the HST or the QST in the case of Quebec, that's another fifteen cents. But they apply it to the to the excise tax as well.
1: Right, so it's tax on tax. It's
3: including uh, the excise tax, so it's a tax on tax. So the government actually really gets a big whammy in terms of extra extra revenue. Uh, and so that's, um, that's true. Uh, I mean, you're absolutely correct uh, that the government does get extra revenue and that's a good reason why they shouldn't have to go out and spend all that money. Uh, and, 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 you know, from that comes from that extra inflation. But if you look at what happened, even in the last federal budget uh, the government got quite a bit of money coming in. In fact, by December of 2021, you know, uh, just the start of 2022 the, um, the, the federal government actually, in December 2021, actually balanced the books. That one, they had so much revenue coming in. Um, so the only way you can run a deficit is just keep upping spending, which is what they did. And yeah. so, even though they brought the deficit down in the last budget, um, they could have brought it down a lot more if they didn't go out and spend another forty billion dollars in, uh, in, in, you know, in, in new programs. So mm. uh, that's why I'm saying there is there is money available for the government uh, to cut their spending and to and and to reduce the deficit well at the same time they could actually have some tax cuts at, at the same point that could could help whether it's getting i've argued to get rid of the fuel excise tax for example like why does the federal government even need it anymore it's it's really just part of it as a transfer to the municipalities but it but it's not really needed anymore as a as a tax of the federal government, how they don't fund highways and bridges, provinces do.
1: Yeah. So, what I, I hear in this is that. So, I was told by a former MP that this is the only job. Actually, I was a current MP who told me that the only thing that a politician gets graded on that's different from any other career is that a politician gets graded on how much money they can spend of other people's money. Meanwhile, every other career is how much money can you earn. And balance that with your spending, right? And so that's the difference and we don't ever take that look on politicians. And so what I'm hearing in this particular case is, is that right now, if you want to go back to the very entertaining statement from so many years ago about budgets balance themselves, that right now would be an amazing opportunity to look like geniuses and start having surpluses in every single month on the budget. You could have surpluses right now and look like a genius, and probably win a bunch of voters over if um, you were a little bit disciplined in, in the where the money was going.
3: Well, now's was, the easiest um, time. Yeah. Well, as Thomas Sowell in the United States has said, uh, you know the the first law of economics is scarcity. You know, you can only spend what you have. Uh, the first law of politics is to ignore the first law of economics.
1: Yeah, and that's scary, isn't it? It's very scary. Um, Jack, this is amazing. Thank you so much for the insights. Um, I just have one last question. I mean, you've done this for a long time. Uh, you're considered an expert in your field. And um, uh, why do you love it? Why is it so important to you, uh, these uh, economics? And, uh, you know, why do you get into this? I mean, for me, I always look at my kids, right? My future for my kids and all those things. What is it for you to do this for so long that you've been so deeply invested in this world?
3: Oh, I, you know, it's a good question. I, I started off in history in my academic uh, learning at the University of Alberta uh, where I first started, and, uh, and I switched over to economics and a number of reasons for doing it. Um, and I particularly uh, focused on public economics, which is study of government taxation and, and expenditures. I don't know why. I think it's maybe – I think a lot of it I think goes back to my parents who – one was a conservative, one was a liberal. They used to fight at the dinner table all the time. And, uh, I really loved listening to their discussions of public policy and their arguments over it. Uh, and so I think that kind of influenced the way I thought about how important economics is actually to uh, determining how well people could do. Uh, in in the end, it's really critical, uh, you know, that uh, that people have, uh, you know, a, a good life and a good standard of living and and economics plays a big role of it. I guess that's where my interest uh, ended up going to.
1: I love it. It's kind of very similar to, I got asked once why I got into music radio before I got into talk radio. And I said, my answer used to be because I always thought the music was bad and I could do a better job than everybody else. I don't know if I did or not, but at least that's what I tried to do. And uh, it sounds similar actually, you know, you hear all these arguments and you kind of go, well, maybe I can figure this out for these people. It's fascinating. Thank you so much for your time. Very generous, Jack. I really appreciate it.
3: My pleasure.
0: This is The Shift Podcast. Welcome Welcome to the world of weird things with Greg Fish.
1: All right, it is the world of weird things, and um, you're off on uh, some recklessness from 70 years ago, Fish.
4: Yeah, a little bit. Uh, So basically, I know that Canada is uh, banning some single-use plastics and is going to... continue to ban some other types in the future according to the rumors flying around. Um, there's been talk about doing the same thing in United States, and I wanted to take a look at what the science actually says. Will this will this hurt? Will this help? Will this make any difference? Um, and according to a lot of scientists, this is actually a great step forward because the problem with single-use plastics is that a lot of them can't actually be recycled. Because you see the plastics industry and companies that use a lot of plastic will tell us, oh, just put it in your recycle bin and it'll become new bottles, it'll become new containers, and everything will be fine. But that's not really true. Less than 10% of all plastic actually gets recycled uh, because the problem is that the processes require a certain type of purity. And when you melt down the existing plastic into those pellets and add it to the raw ingredients, you still have to add brand new plastic. So again, we, we use so much plastic and we consume so much plastic and then we waste so much plastic that it's now literally in every single ecological nook and cranny and yes microplastic is even in our organs now the science is out on exactly how much damage that does, but there really isn't any scientist out there who says, oh, this this should be totally fine, there shouldn't be any, any, any problems whatsoever, because they're seeing a lot of similarities uh, to things like asbestos and carbon dust and things that they already know causes problems. So they're more concerned about trying to figure out how much damage is going to cause um, and not necessarily whether it's causing damage or not.
1: Okay, well, I mean, there's no doubt uh, that that would suck to, uh, you know, have plastics fall out of you without a doubt. Um, now we've seen this, of course, with other things as well. We've heard, you know, uh mercury and fish, we've heard plastics and fish and sea life. We've heard all of these things about plastics being everywhere. Wouldn't it make more sense fish though? If we, um if perhaps we just built better plastic that was more recyclable
4: actually that that's exactly what it is um, and the problem is that you need to force a lot of these companies and a lot of these monopolies and oligopolies in order to do that so these kinds of bans these kinds of Regulations that essentially say you have to build better plastic, you have to build more biodegradable plastic, you have to uh, use more biodegradable materials, maybe use a little bit less plastic and a little bit more um, cardboard, or or find something that that's even better, that's something that is much more biodegradable. Uh, that's what we're. That's what these bans and what these regulations are really trying to do. It's not about let's eliminate plastics because plastics are very useful. Like we actually we actually need materials like plastics. Um, but we really need them to be more safe and it's kind of like it's kind of been a trend um, since the middle of the last century there's a lot of these uh, miracle solutions and, and a lot of this this very exotic chemistry that gives us very useful products. But there was very little thought to safety and to pollution and to disposal. um, And we're now stuck cleaning up the mess. So, for example, uh, lead was fantastic for stopping engine knock. Uh, If you add it to gasoline, it was great at keeping moisture out of paint. Um, It was really good for creating uh, very large pipe networks. But it's a neurotoxin. You know, we use mercury in a lot of things, and mercury is a great chemical for a lot of industrial processes that we rely on. But when we just dump it out in the ocean, it ends up with fish, which we eat, and then we ingest that mercury, and it stays around in our system. You know, asbestos was fantastic insulation, and it's great for fireproofing, and it's a great fire retardant. But the problem is that the fibers of asbestos are... Abrasive. They end up in our lungs, they tear up our cells, and they can accelerate certain types of lung cancer. So, again, the problem isn't really so much that, you know, oh, we're using all these chemicals and these chemicals are bad and the people who made them are bad. No, 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 no. These chemicals were invented to solve problems, but Right now, they're much more trouble than they're worth. So what we really need to do is we really need to go back and say, okay, these were great solutions. How can we actually make them safer? And this is really where we have the disconnect uh, because a lot of these companies are very risk averse. They're very lawsuit averse. So their entire thing is we're going to double down on what we're doing because we don't gonna we don't want to get sued and we don't want to stop our business because we're making money. So we're just gonna keep doing what we're doing and we're gonna try and cast down on the science. We're going to try and hire our own scientists who are going to say something opposite or that these things aren't as big of a deal as they really are so again really there has to be something something has to give um and unfortunately you know strong-handed government action is usually not the best way to get things done but in this particular case uh it it kind of is it's really the only thing they can basically make them say okay you don't have a choice anymore you have to put out something that's safe because otherwise you're not going to have a business
1: well, it's interesting, right? Like, I'm curious because you're you're an American and I'm a Canadian. So, should the government step in on it? In just your view of it, I mean, because there's some different, really wildly different views of this. It's not a test question. It's just an honest
4: question. The th- it's not it's not my ideal preference. Like the 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 way it actually. Absolutely befuddles me where, you know, there's this demand for something that's safer and there's a lot of very talented chemists and there's a lot of very talented business executives. and There's a lot of very talented marketers who would go who could go out and say this is a fantastic opportunity to make billions of dollars providing safe alternatives and to do the right thing right now that the incentives to do the right thing is is amazing. And yet they don't want to do it. So it's very much like this is the last action that I would want to see. But unfortunately, it seems like it is necessary. It's one of those. It's one of those necessary evils.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: This is where I get lost in this, right? Um, there's some lawsuit things and, and whatever that you know that the government or that you know the plastics companies, and in some cases they say the oil and gas companies, but call them the plastics companies because they're the ones that build the chemistry for this. You know, should be held accountable for this, not us, the consumer. But I. I The one thing that I think is wildly missing in the world today is the end of line version of the product. I feel like there needs to be an end of line proof almost in products today that we build products with no solution, even in shipping, grocery, box after box after box after box, and then it gets shipped so it all looks pretty when it arrives. It's up to the, not the shipping company, it's not up to the manufacturer to deal with the cardboard, right? It's the store on the other end that's got to deal with and recycle the cardboard. And so I, I guess that I, I don't understand, and I, I truly don't understand who, which group should be accountable for this because the plastics company, I, I don't believe that the plastics company should be able to, in good conscience, create plastics that don't have an end-of-life solution. We can apply that to all kinds of things, but what about plastics that are in cars today? What about uh, the materials that are in windmills today? Those aren't uh, just now some technology allowing to recycle them. So they go and they sell, and even um, even um in ca- your your home state of California, some of the old incentives for solar is now they're at end-of-lifetime, and there's all this stuff left over. Like, this is a larger overarching conversation. We'll stay focused on plastic. But then they sell solar is better, but by the way, there's no place to put it. They sell electric cars is better, but by the way, there's no place to put it. They sell windmills are better. By the way, there's no place to put it. They also sold to us plastic grocery bags were better, but there's no place to put it. And at some point, like, there's got to be some accountability yet. By the way, we're selling you this thing and... It's. There's no place to put it.
4: Yeah, I'd absolutely agree with you. And the manufacturers would have to bear that responsibility because they have the know-how. They manufactured it. They know the properties of the chemicals. They know what it's going to look like when it breaks down, and they should have a really good idea of how to deal with it. And they need to be able to prescribe that. Now, if uh, their advice isn't followed then yes of course you know they've put out the guidance they they've proved that they can do an end of life uh and if someone doesn't follow them that's on them uh but yeah. that responsibility currently does not exist and and you're absolutely right to bring up solar you know solar again this is one of those things that we definitely want more solar like it literally the sun is giving us free energy we need yeah, to capture we need to use it it's fantastic but then we have landfills full of solar panels and everyone in california is going wait a minute i thought we were supposed to recycle those we can't just put them in a landfill we can't just yeah. put the wind turbines in la- like we have to do something we can't just well it turns out that's what they do throw them out um,
1: they yeah, do just throw it, them out and um you know, and that's and that's that's the wild thing, right? Is that there is no easy solution, and the best net effect has to be it. And we always look at the beginning of this life cycle. We never look at the end of the life cycle. And grocery bags is a great example. Since we're talking about plastics, right? In the very beginning, was paper bags, and then they sold it to us uh, back in the day. As by the way, these have handles, they're durable, and they're better for everything. Da 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 da. Well, turns out it wasn't very long until they were flying around everywhere, and everyone started to catch on that they don't ever biodegrade with those old plastics. And so now in hindsight, everyone's kind of going, you know what? They were just cheaper. <laughs> That's it. They were cheaper and they sold us an eco thing on it. And and so when you talk about plastics from 50 years ago, 70 years ago, and and that we really haven't kept up, right? Like we've got clamshell plastics that, you know, we can, for the most part, as long as they're not contaminated, can be re-recycled. That takes energy to recycle, but it's better net effect Than going in the garbage bin. Well, what happened when some of these third world countries stopped taking our garbage to burn it or recycling because they now there's too much. We're still producing too much of it today. And those companies get to and I'm a capitalist, but they get to continually pound out this plastic and it's our problem.
4: It it really becomes our problem because there's really, how do you enforce that, that end of life? Yeah. How do you enforce that responsibility? And the problem then becomes, well, you can rely on these companies to do the right thing. And that's what we've been doing for the past 70 years. And they haven't done that. So unfortunately, the only action that's really left is for someone to come in and say, okay, you are now legally required to do this. Otherwise, you can't operate. Um, yeah. and, and, that's, I mean, and that, unfortunately, is what it comes down to.
1: Well, and and this is like a life cycle of grocery bags is so super easy to follow, right? Is that, you know, you've got plastic bags, they're cheap to make, but they don't go anywhere. Then you got paper bags, they're uh, four times the amount of energy to make, but then, you know, they do biodegrade for the most part if they're not too waxy. And, uh, you know, but they're not quite as durable, which is so there's a little bit better on the end of the line for those things. And then you've got cotton bags and then you've got these uh, polypropylene bags, which is still got elements of plastic in them. Right. And so you buy those ones from the grocery store. They've still got plastics in the fibers. You're not actually using cotton bags. So for every uh plastic bag, energy-wise, because there's like energy, ingredients, all that stuff come into these calculations, for every plastic bag, you have to use a paper bag four times, you have to use a cotton bag like 33 times, and you have to use a, these bags that we do buy that are still filled with plastic 130 times to see the energy, the overall net benefit. And how many fabric bags do you have in your basement? I got hundreds of them, I swear. And so this whole conversation, frankly, is is tainted, it's toxic, it's polluted, And so how are we going to cut through on it, Fish?
4: So one of the biggest things that we're going to need to do is we're going to need to have as many incentives as possible to kind of innovate our way out of it. Because we do need to come up with new chemicals that can break this down and help recycle this. We will also need to figure out alternatives. We'll also need to figure out end of life. And again, there, there have to be uh incentive programs there have to be regulations there have to be some sort of uh there has to be some sort of examination that this is that this is all getting done uh and there has to be a lot of messaging around it that essentially says listen we are not doing this because you know we hate capitalism capitalism we're not doing this because we hate companies we're doing this because yeah. we care about you we care about um the citizens we care about the end users we don't want you to have plastic in your organs like it's. It's really it's really as simple as that and it really needs to be focused on that um, one of the big examples that that one of the b- big examples again we, we're talking mostly about plastic because you know plastic is such a huge problem um, but there's another problem that surrounds plastic uh, and that's something called plastic uh, Pfas or PFAS chemicals, and are used in a lot of nonstick coatings and surface and surfaces. Uh, well, these particular coatings uh, have been linked to decreased fertility, and they have also been decreased to uh, in linked to uh, birth defects. Uh, mm-hmm. So, and, and these are also known as forever chemicals because they take thousands of years to break down, and they're also in many many places. So, you know, imagine coming in and saying so. There are these chemicals that are actually, like, reducing the fertility of the human species, and we're just going to wait for someone to do the right thing on them. We don't really want to, you know rock the boat too much like i am i'm all for a free market and i absolutely think that you know any sort of solution for this is going to come out of a competition among multiple companies that have that deep bench of scientists and experts who can create that better solution and compete with each other on the market uh, for the best cheapest most effective version of it but i can't see the market just deciding to do the right thing on its own because it hasn't for the past 70 years. Uh, the the I, I feel like the best use of, of the free market for us is when we have, as a society say, this is what we want to accomplish. Now go compete for this business. Go compete and, and, and create this best solution. Uh, and I think that that's the way that we're going to need to approach Uh, clean up and green up the world and i i think that's definitely happening in many ways with green energy because there's a lot of companies out there that are trying to build the best the best solar panel they're trying to build the best wind turbine they're trying to build uh different different ways even the, the, the best electric cars
1: Better about well, better plastics. Right. I mean, even side inside the conversation, yeah. it's unfair for us to say plastics as a whole, because there are some organizations that have worked really, really hard to make better net effect plastics, too. So we got to make sure that we at least acknowledge that part. Um Two quick things here. Number one, I just recycled my toner cartridge from my printer from brother. And so it's heavy plastics, obviously, in the toner and then it's cardboard in it and you can send it back to them. I hope they reuse it um, or recycle or whatever, but I hope so. But you can send it back. They pay for that. It's ready to go. That's responsible work. At the same time though, there's polystyrene holding it all together inside. So it doesn't, does it need to be polystyrene it could be the cardboard stuff, right? So there's some wins. There are some losses and you just said it though, with your own words, they need to compete for this business is what you said. And, uh, it does land on us as the consumer. They're not going to compete for the business if we don't make them compete for the business.
4: Yeah, hundred percent. And so I would very much encourage uh, encourage people to try and use as little single use plastics as possible. If you have that, if you see that alternative packaging, if you see something that that is that is easier to get, uh, go for it. If it's something that's just shipped in cardboard, okay, great, cardboard breaks down. Uh, There are, unfortunately, limits to what we can do as individuals. uh, But the biggest thing that we can also do is we can demand from our politicians something that, you know, we would like to have less pollution. We don't want to have plastics in our blood so we're going to need you to enforce some of these rules on some of the biggest companies and give us more allow us to have more choices so then we can make that we can support the companies that are doing the right thing and hopefully have that competition essentially decide that this is the way that we're going with so it's definitely there there's Definitely, a lot of moving parts involved, uh, but I think that we can definitely make a difference by essentially demanding uh, demanding to set the rules in our favor, and then we can make the choice, and we can, uh, and, and we can shape the rules of the competition uh, for greener, cleaner materials. Yeah, just
1: more responsible. This is cool. Greg Fish, World of weird, World of weird Without a doubt, regarding of regardless of where you land on the spectrum of all things green. I think we can all agree that the drive-through mentality doesn't work in this. And why is any any restaurant still using polystyrene containers for takeaway? Uh, that doesn't even make sense. There's better solutions. So there's no denying that. Thanks, Fish.
4: Always a pleasure.
0: Thanks for listening to The Shift
1: Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca.